Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Rhett Burton from Burton English School, which is a homeschool in Korea. Very nice to speak to you today, Rhett. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. The first time that we kind of made a connection was through our mutual friend, Robert Murphy, who's been a, a multiple time guest on the podcast and also has contributed his own interviews as well. And it was in connection to his 3D CG assessment rubric, yes, which, which, we'll, which we'll get to. But first, I'd like to learn a little bit more about yourself. So one of the things that one of the materials that you sent me was your online materials through School. I'd just like to learn a little bit more about your uh, design and teaching philosophy that guides you in your uh, in your teaching work. Yeah, well, hopefully I can shine a little bit, bit of a light on that topic. Sometimes it's, you know, when we when we start talking about teaching and learning, things can get really complicated really fast. So what, one thing I kind of, you know, and we challenge how we how we think about teaching and how we think about learning as we progress through our age, you know, like the way I thought about it when I was 10 is different than when I was in my 20s, different than when I was in my 30s. And now that I'm in my 40s, I've sort of had to, you know, reconsolidate information and knowledge so that it makes sense for me in the present so that I can discard some of the things, some of the old practices that I had or some of the best practices that I thought I used to have or and um and so i i'm going to start with just saying you know my main principle for teaching is to be a jack of all trades with children because i don't really know i don't know the future that is very unknown to me and i don't know what they're going to be interested in because their talents are still emerging or their their interests are still emerging so i tackle the the jack of all trades approach or the renaissance man type approach or woman because it really offers a lot of flexibility for me to adapt to my students as we progress through some of the content that i use or some of the the topics that we discuss and and it gives me it puts me in a position of of adapting to their needs as they make it sort of that point of need context so if they do something I can I can step back and say okay let's pause it now and let's breathe and calm down and say or let's reboot this activity because there there was too much confusion or you know I can find a better approach to to sort of the group or the individual at that specific time and when I say jack of all trades I follow care my curriculum has children follow characters Mm. Not per se themes, but characters, because in our life, we have these friends or we have these mentors or we have these teachers and we follow them through their own practices to learn how to adapt or, or become them or learn to think like them. So it's like, what can we learn? So some of the characters I use is like, say, Hansel and Gretel. You know, what did they learn when they were walking through the forest? What did they see? What did they hear? And what happened to them? Like, how are they, how are they, how are they introduced to the candy house? And what kind of context happened when they were at the con candy house? And when they got into the candy house, 
what happened next? And, you know, as these, I've already mapped it out in my, my mind, but, you know, as the kids sort of develop these, as they walk through these contexts, you know, you don't, they don't know exactly what they're going to say or what they're going to think about. So I'm sort of there at every sort of like small little pivot. Well, the idea of characters and archetypes is a psychological concept that is often used to frame educational philosophies and, uh, and other things like fairy tales and, and things like that. Common characters are things that students can, particularly children, can associate with fairly quickly. So how did you choose which characters you would include in your syllabus? That was a build-as-I-go type experience. Because, you know, like, we, we often don't know. Like, it's easy to say, I want, say, Jack, Jack and the Beanstalk or I want Goldilocks, but I didn't know how their story was going to develop until I started curating content around, around the students' interests and, and then how I could apply that content to the characters based upon maybe the personality of the characters and even the personality of the kids who are enrolled in my school. Mm -hmm. So as you're doing, as you're curating content, you'll find that that there's a lot of content for specific topics and, and themes. And then you start to think, well, this really works for this, this course and this really works for this course. So I can see, I can connect these dots between, you know, how, how the content for the Jack curriculum merges into the content for the Goldilocks curriculum. And that still the, it, it, it touches on the fundamental, like how to be, you know, how to navigate the complexity of, of childhood in a way that, you know, just makes sense to children. And do you get feedback from the students? Is this something that you do observationally or is it something that you ask the, the students directly or the parents about the, the characters that they most identify with or would like to use more in the lessons? That's interesting because a lot of times when we see something, we, we, we say something about it or we make an observation, the students make an observation. And when I'm in a right sort of mode and I'm observing them observe the content, then I'm able to see things like, oh, he said this is Hansel and Gretel when I haven't even taught that it was Hansel and Gretel. So they're linking to their own form of schema from somewhere else. And, and I, I'm like, that's, that's cool, that's interesting. I really like that. And, and then, and as they see things like their visual sort of, and this is one reason why my content is very visual and not so much textual, because as these children who haven't developed the skills to decode and, and understand text and the dynamics, usage of text and all these forms and things, but they've already visually mapped out the world that they see. So when they look at the pictures, they, they make connections. And then I listen to these connections that they're making, say in their L1. And then I write it down. And I'm like, that's a, great, that's a great note. That's a great note. Like I should remember that. And I write it down. And then that's a lot about how I created my content is what the kids saw in the content. And then I sort of applied a new layer to it with every time that I taught it. So before we get into the, the actual content, then you're teaching in Korea. South Korea. Uh, are there uh, South, uh, yeah, South Korea. And are there any kind of common characters that you've noticed in Korean children's literature that they've they've mapped onto what are 
um, kind of like European children's characters? Well, I think that a lot of the characters come down with similar values and mm -hmm. morals that make for good, you know, that sort of help the children understand the difference between like greed and, and selfishness and, and help, you know, being, showing empathy to a variety of kids. Like there's certain, there's certain principles that are kind mm -hmm. of across the world considered as like, you know, universal values there's certainly are moral universals i i mean in i i don't know very much about uh south korean children's literature or, ch or children's stories but uh in japan like the the stories of momotaro and kintaro are very they have the same kind of common themes as you say of being strong courageous stoic friendly forming uh companionships and defeating evil uh, and so I, I think these are kind of universals. I, I was just wondering if in South Korea there were any characters that uh, you'd like to mention for well, our South Korean listeners who might like feel, have that connection. I'm going to say that when I first came to South Korea, I was very interested in learning Korean through children's novels or through children's stories. Hmm. But somewhere in the in the grand scheme of me being here, I kind of forgot a lot of, you know, who these characters are because I kind of got connected to linking to a different idea. Mm -hmm. But I will say that there's Kunji and Paji, and they're like a brother and sister who, you know, have to, you know, who who, who go through you know certain situations and certain challenges and learn how to overcome them through different strategies and whatnot. But there are some characters that are are well known. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a, a an interesting and and a unique approach to the idea of providing kind of a cultural moral universals and kind of like these stories that are repeated around the world. The character names change, but basically the story outcomes remain the same because they are ones that children. And you know, even adults can connect with. Um, so I, I think it's a, a, a an interesting way of um, constructing a course. Um, could I just ask what what brought you to South Korea? What what's kind of your your background, and then brought you to the the homeschooling uh, activities that you're doing now? Well, what brought me to Korea, South Korea, in 2002 was the dot com bust. I just graduated from university with a with a technology degree, computer science degree, and at the same time as the world wasn't, or the world that I knew wasn't hiring, and I needed to formulate a new plan to to pay back my student loans, which led me to a school that my my friend from from my same class was working at, and he said, "Listen, your personality, teaching these young children, they would go hand in hand together." And that is what, you know, his recommendation and, you know, me not being able to, you know, afford my student debt was like an instant sort of formula to me coming to South Korea. And then gradually, you know, we, you know, when you work at a school and, you know, you learn what the parameters are within the school, you're, you, you, you learn to negotiate what works best for the present, you know, and when I was young, paying off my student debt was one of those things that really informed a lot of my decisions.
but it came to a point where I paid off the debt and then I realized that I didn't have any opportunity to sort of branch off into understanding more theory behind what I was doing in class because I had no training. The other teachers at my school had no training and I, I, I kind of felt it was difficult to learn more within the context that I was in because it wasn't really a, an environment conducive to learning. It was, you know, jump in the classroom, teach, 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 and then leave. Which then I'm, it, it, so then I, I switched to a public school where I had a lot more time to focus on, you know, planning better lessons. And I got to, you know, focus more on designing curriculum because I had more time to plan my lessons. And it, things got a lot more systematical in how I thought about you know, bringing, say, an aim to, to the student's needs, you know, or, or bridging the gap between, you know, their wants and my needs and into a experience or a course that, that, that works for both them and me. I, I have a slightly similar background to you in that I finished university and had no other options and uh, a colleague of mine said, well, how about going and going to Japan and, and teaching for a year? Like, it's just a, it's just a one year contract, go out, get some experience, uh, come back and do something else. But that was 20 years ago. And as you say, one thing leads to another. And you find out that you actually enjoy what you're doing, and you get better at it. And then particularly with teaching, like you get this positive feedback loop that the the more you try the better it gets the more the students respond and 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 so uh yeah so this is how i've ended up here uh, there, there, I, how it explains the podcast i don't know but um. yeah so there, there was another big crossroads between my second and third job and when i was focusing on like learning how to become a better teacher a lot of my friends at that point or that stage in my career, they were going out and getting their masters and they were studying about this and this, you know, getting going deep in the theory. And I was like, I was always hesitant because because I felt like that the ecosystem for teaching in South Korea was always a little bit precarious because, you know, if this the government changes, then the, the job changes. And then if I go to a university and, you know, these so sometimes the incentives don't really match the, mm. the, the mm. work that you want to do. And I, 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 by the end of my five years at the public school, it's like, you know, I had friends who graduated from the master's program, switched to a university just to realize that they couldn't, that other life challenges couldn't maintain that sort of job. And then they moved back home into a slightly different career. And mm. I was like, and so it really, it, it it scared me to go into taking my master's because I wasn't too sure if I could control my own employment. And I guess I've always felt I wanted to stay in control of what the projects that I was working on. Well, you bring a very, a very good point about career path. And uh, when you say like, I was between my second and third job, uh, a lot of people who maybe a, a listening to this who, who haven't had experience uh, in places like South Korea and, and Japan, how many different times you have to change your job, uh, a period, these kind of periods of your life, unstable periods of your life. And, you know, you're meeting people, you, you get married, you have children, you're, you know, you're trying to plan, but 
yet the contract is up, you have to go look, look for something else. And it really does create this instability, which is why um, I was, I, I'm always intrigued by people who start setting up their own way of, you know, controlling their situation, for example, with your homeschooling, and also uh, with your, uh, with your website here. So I, I'd like to get into the, the contents of the website. So it's, uh, it's learn.burtonenglishschool.com. And uh, what we what we find on the on the homepage is it's a, an introduction to basically your mission statement about how you structure your courses, how you decide your materials, the different levels that are offered. Um, but the very first picture is, as you say, the the characters that people are going to that the students are going to interact with in your courses. So could you give us some background to how you started this website, why you thought this was the best delivery system for your materials, some of your, uh, some of your thinking. You, you already said that you're a, a computer science major, so you have some background in this, but I know this is not something that is easy to get into. So could you give us some background to that? Sure thing. So I was, I've always been interested in, you know, web technologies ever since I was a boy, you know, like I remember taking a, my first computer science, pro, uh, computer first computer class in high school. And, and I've always felt that, that that is a tool for the future. And, you know, and it's, I still feel it is a tool for the future now. And, but, you know, just because, you know, you have the tool and you know how to use the tool, it doesn't always mean you can always apply the tool to the context you're in, to how other people are going to use the tool. And so I've actually made my website and it, I'm actually afraid of my website because I'm, I'm not really, I don't really have all the knowledge that I know I need to build it right the first time. And you know, when you hear these life lessons from your dad, like you're gonna do it right, do it right the first time and, and all these things, it's like, but I can't, I just don't have these skills. And then, and then as you build it out, you learn that you make some critical errors and you have to start from scratch. And then you build it out again and you realize you made another critical error and you have to build it out from scratch again. And then at the same time, these, these hobbies, you know, you're, you're, you're fueled by curiosity, you're fueled by your, you know, your, your interest in it. But at the same time, you have to manage it with the reality of real life. Like you only have so much time and money and energy and you have to focus on your family, your health and your other things. And it's like, do I really want to move forward with the manipulation, the using of that tool? And sometimes like when I build it, when I built it out from a teacher's perspective, it didn't have the, the it didn't have the, the ability to make sales. And when I built it out from a, from a marketing perspective, it didn't have the ability to teach. Managing that complexity or on that pendulum from like too much of one thing, too little of another, it really, it, it's been a pain for me to really move forward with. And, and still after 10 years of building, or of learning how to build websites, I'm still just doing it as a hobby project actually. And I build it mostly for myself and not for my students so that I can map my own knowledge and keep myself on the track that I want, that I think is most conducive for my life. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it because we've spoken to web developers in the past and they've basically said the same thing that you 
start it because you think it's something that you need, not necessarily that that other people need. You want to keep track of the materials that you're creating. And before the advent of things like Google Drive and Dropbox and things like that, then if there were very few places that you could actually maintain a large repository of materials. And then the more that you build it out, the more you recognize the functionality of it and how it improves your ability to connect with your students. I completely agree with the issue of starting something and then realizing the critical error having to start again. Anyone who's visited uh, our webpage, a uh, bit of a shill, lostincitations.com, this is kind of like the third iteration of it that I started. We use Wix as the uh, hosting and infrastructure service. But yeah, I've had to redo that three times because you start out like, oh, this is easy. You just drag, drop, do this, put that in, and that's great. And then after a month of work, you realize, oh no, that shouldn't be there. And then you, uh, and then you realize, then you, you come to that realization and that decision: do I just keep going down this road and cobbling it together and trying to make it work, or do I start again? the iterative process of creating something like a website is a, a very good learning experience. Can I ask which like hardware and, and software do you use to make your website? I guess it's built on WordPress mm -hmm. and the servers are hosted by GoDaddy. I do not have the skills to negotiate all the server stuff or time or interest. So I just go with, you know, some well-known names that, that work, then I use, to create the membership service, I use something called Access Ally. And what it does is it opens content or closes content to people who I want to see it or to people who I don't want to see it. And which is crucial for me and my work because I do a lot of recordings of my own classes. Like every month I record a class and I have to protect that content, that digital content through passports and through by, not giving people access to certain pages, but, but still providing me with the access to it. And then, but to use that software, I have to use a CRM, which I use active campaign to control the members and the, the tags that they have. And then with all that, there's, you know, there's software as service fees. So some of it costs between, you know, $100 per month to $10 a month. And all those little fees, they add up. And at the end of the day, it's like, is it worth protecting your content? And then it's like, to some teachers like, well, nobody wants this content. But you know, we make up these excuses for not doing something, but at the same time, we don't really, that's in our unknown unknowns and we don't know how this content may influence our career or may used for us or against us. So it, it does serve some benefit to keep things under lock and key a little bit. Like, Well, there's also the fact that you're, dealing with children and yes. and you wanting to keep your members as secure as possible i think is uh is a worthwhile goal you mentioned offline that you uh produced the the, the visuals yes through independent was this an independent online illustrator. artist illustrator well, well you know, I'm a curious guy and I'm always riding my bike around town or walking the streets because you never know who opens and who closes. And one day I saw a new shop 
a new store, a new school being opened up in my neighborhood. And I popped my head in and said, hi, do you do graphics? Can you make me a picture? Can you draw me a picture? He said, I don't know, what do you need? And so I told him my idea and he's like, oh, that sounds big. But I was naive to the idea of how big it would actually get. And so for year, day, you know, month after month, I went in with small little projects. And over the course of five years, I've collected, you know, images that allowed me to tell the stories that kind of, that were being told between me and my students. And then gradually I kind of came to the point where I am where I am today over the, the last five years or six years. And I think I asked you this in a, in a slightly different way before, but uh, have you received any feedback from your students? And has this changed the way that you present your material online? It, it, it's changed in a great deal. And, but one of, one of the things I'm reluctant to do is be the designer. So I'm just trying to keep things as simple as I can so that I don't have to like re-upload an image because I made a spelling mistake on some tech and all these little things. But the thing is like most of the design on the computer is just done for my own hobby. I still present it in a physical form through a book because parents love books. Children love books. It's linear, page one, page two, page three. It doesn't require a multitude of tech savvy awareness to be able to navigate a website. So I think that you know certain things are designed, that I designed a certain way for the students in mind. And then I also designed for myself in a non-linear non fashion because I understand how it's all organized. But if I was to get parents on board to, to some non-linear system, then it would require a lot of play on my behalf. And I've yet to really build out that ultimate LMS. <laughs> then let's have two minutes of big sky thinking in relation to your work. Given an adequate budget and perhaps even assistance, what things would you like to add to your website that would increase these things like functionality, connectability, usability? What, 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 what would you like to do? Where, where, where is it going? Well, you know, I would like to, uh, those parameters are enticing, but it, they also lead me down into like this, this weird sort of unknown, like I just can't see past the tip of my toes. And so I actually use your website because there are people who are having these deep conversations about, about certain concepts that are interested in, that I'm interested in. So I follow Robert Murphy and he, following him, has given me a lot of insights that he has had and a lot of takeaways. So I read his dissertation. I've listened to his podcast. I've tried to take his 3D CG framework and apply it. But, you know, like he, I'm just taking, you know, I'm standing on his shoulders to be able to create what I do. And I also do that with other, say, thought leaders on YouTube where I follow, you know, other professionals, other uh, professors, other people of, you know, who have interesting ideas. And then I sort of take notes. I study that, like maybe like somebody would take in their own masters. And so I've sort of tried to formulate what would my own master's program look like? Who do I want to study? What, why am I wanting to study them? And how can I apply that 
to my present day needs. I think of it in exactly the same way. And um, when I mentioned my career path bringing me towards this podcast, it is connected to exactly as you say, you go on YouTube and you can listen to people that are, um, as you say, thought leaders. There are people who I've been following and I'm lucky enough that I can use them in my courses now. So people like Hans Rosling, Simon Sinek, uh, Majid Nawaz, Hayton Patel, the people who have been out there and done it. And exactly as you say, didn't succeed the first time, made mistakes, learned from them, and now you know, people who can then pass on this idea of like, well, don't make the same mistake, go out, go out and make new mistake and but, but learn you know, from like, them. It's like, you know, when you, when you're dealing with skill set after skill set and connections, like sometimes you have to make all these, you have to make the same mistakes that I made, but you have to make them for yourself. Yeah. And then you have to come to the realization for yourself that maybe that you have to, you know, bridge your next gap. I can't get you to where you want to be faster until you learn how to make these steps yourself and, and get better at making better decisions for your own context. Well, I've had this conversation with my wife about my kids and that we can't yet uh, until we get until we get the Neuralink introduced, we can't download our knowledge and our experiences to our children all we can do is kind of put them in situations where they learn how to learn how to not do the thing that they shouldn't be doing or learn how to learn how to do the thing that would serve them best. I guess this is essentially what parents have been doing forever, but you only learn that through the experience of it. I, I, I forget who made the quote, uh, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's not mine. It's the, the idea that life is an experience that is only understood going backwards, but we are cursed to live it going forwards. When we get to the end of our lives, we'll just be like, yeah, yeah, nailed it. I got it. But we, we, can't, we can't download that to anything. That, that cultural capital that we've built up through our lives, we, we take that with us to the grave. And it's just, uh, we, we hope that the people who come after us uh, learn a little bit uh, from us. And that's why I, th I think that the present is so important, you know, because that's, you know, what we sense in the today in our surroundings is, is vital that we can absorb what we sense and then sort of predict what, what might come five steps from now. But, you know, do it in a way that informs all of our other knowledge networks and all of our skills and all of our whole being, our whole sense, our whole human, you know, our whole experience is making those informed decisions. But if I can only see it through a small sort of spectrum, then, then I'm only limited, I'm limited to that domain. And I think that's dangerous. So our connection comes through our common friends, Robert Murphy, who is, of course, not a common man. He's a, he's a great man and a, a fine academic. This interview came about by your connection to his 3D CG assessment rubric concept. So 3D, three dimensions, uh, CG, uh, constant grading assessment. Yes. And the idea is that there are three planes to it, the X plane, the Y, and the Z. The X being duration, the Y being engagement, and the Z being real-world application. So how long is it done? 
how connected are the students and how real is the experience would be the uh, or how real world applicable is the experience would be the best way to describe it the conversation that we were having was in connection to the game of uno yes first of all before we get into the direct activity what was it that kind of drew you in or or made or appealed to you from the 3d cg model oh and please feel free to say nice things about robert well it's always nice having the opportunity to learn from others so seeing through somebody else's perspective and you know if they're having these challenges and you haven't asked yourself if you're having these challenges it's very you should be it's nice to be open to to how other people see and so I needed a, a means to be able to see my teaching on on something that was more deeper than just like is it visually appealing is it is the language aligned to you know the context on the page and I wanted something a lot deeper and when I read and then years later reread and and I, I found the clarity to maybe understand how I could better apply it I, I chose uno because it was such a basic game that some people a lot of people they see uno is like oh you know it's just this simple game that anybody can learn but then you're like you want to like wait to get deep on the learning of that what tools should I use to really assess that activity and you know why not use somebody else's framework to try to have a better conversation with him through his tool. And that was why I sort of applied it to Uno. So I Uno, took something uh, that everybody knew mm. and then applied his framework so that we could talk about something very simple, but go very deep. To start uh, the discussion and just to give some you know real real parameters of what we're what we're speaking about. So the idea of this kind of assessment is that in real time you are looking at how how long the activity lasts, how connected the students are, and then kind of how this connects to an actual real world application. Yes. And one might think that the game of Uno might not have a real world application but just to give give some examples from the thing that we're looking at and we'll we'll add this to we'll add this picture to the website just the idea of uh, spatial reasoning and fine motor skills and patience are examples of things that are built through a game like uno so i can attest having two children who have played it and watched them cheating at it i understand how they build up real world mental acuity through understanding how the game is played so um could you give us some you know real world uh, examples of, of how you use it in your in your homeschool well the main purpose of it is to give the kids a, a positive experience. When they have a positive experience, then they go home happy. If they go home happy and they talk about something that was that they were emotionally engaged with, then, then they talk to their parents and then that, there's that word of mouth marketing. But the thing is, if they go home because, from a negative experience, then that word of mouth marketing doesn't go in your favor. So a lot of school owners and a lot of teachers, 
they they want they don't like using certain content for certain reasons that it 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 can create a positive Comfort. or negative yeah. experience. Hmm. And if you want to keep things positive, then you want to do certain things that that do not engage sort of the cheating or engage the the the, the fairness of play. But you know, for me as a father, as a teacher in my forties. Those are precisely some of the things I really want to dial down on because they're still resonating with me as an older, you know, mature, somewhat matures, matured man. Mm. And, and, but you realize that a lot of these, you said cheating. Well, are they cheating because they actually don't know how to play the game because their, their skill levels dropped from the last time. So they're just playing that card because they don't know or because they, they know when they're trying to play the player. And it's really uh, interesting, like, you know, first they learn how to play the game, you know, and, and there's a lot of cues, like they don't know how to play the game. So they'll show you the card and then they're looking for your confirmation that they can or can't play the card. So there, there's that point of need. And they're not interested in winning. They're just interested in playing the game or doing what is expected of them. And then gradually as their familiarity with the game increases, then they start playing the players to the right and left of them. And then as they learn to play the players, then they, they devolve, they, they learn new strategies. And as they learn new strategies, they learn to learn how those strategies work with say an older brother versus a younger brother. And, and it just gets infinitely more complex, but you can break those down into small little skills. Yeah, no, uh, and that's at the point when you introduce money. <laughs> <laughs> or some <of> credit system. <laughs> no, no. Well, when I when I say cheating, I was I wasn't in the room when the deck was being prepared, and then my youngest, who is probably going to end up being a lawyer or something sneaky like that, uh, he he said, "Papa, do you want to play Uno?" I was like, "Yeah, sure." So I go in, and then I I find out all all the cards being dealt out between me, his brother, and and him, and all of his cards are the plus four or you know <laughs> take two and i'm like um did you arrange this in any in any way and he was very upset by it when just being called on it but you just but at that point it's that it that is a part of real world application when you realize oh if i can control the contents of this deck then i can win the game so yeah. i i don't i'm not angry with him for it and i'm kind of pleased that he worked out the application of it but he kind of missed the uh i would say uh on the y plane he kind of missed the engagement which is that other people will want to play so if one if one person always wins because they've got the best cards and not to be too nerdy about this but i have colleagues who play a card game called magic the gathering and if you have a if you have a deck that has an unbelievably strong number of cards, you can win on your first turn. And then why would anyone play you? Like it makes it very unlikely to do so. That's kind of I think Uno is a it's a gateway drug to things like poker. Now you don't have to play poker for money, and uh, poker is a very uh, interesting game. But it's supposed to be even because the the deck you know doesn't lie. In blackjack in, in 21, you can actually count your cards, but in poker, you it's very, very difficult to do. 
if you're playing with like a five deck shoe I'm, I'm saying too much about my experience in casinos but i think uno is is something that really does lend itself to this idea of constant grading because it should make you more engaged it should make you want to play more and it should teach you those kind of logical skills as you say you're playing the person to the left you're playing the person to the right i i, I find that your story is very intriguing because your son your older son stacked the deck in his favor and he did that not thinking he would be caught because he doesn't know what you know about what a what a random game looks like and suddenly you know it's like boom this didn't go as planned because my dad caught me how did he catch me he knows something that i don't know what is that what you know and then it's like and then and then you're like you saw your son do this for the first time so there's one thing you're very proud of him and then now now does it trigger you do you get angry that he's cheating or do you sort of like tweak that your interaction with him so that you can see how how does he react when you know that he's been caught and then you know it's like how does he manage that anger when he when his plans didn't go as he planned them and it's like and then your goal is to you know to manage those all those ups and downs of his experience to kind of give him a more positive or all the players involved have a more positive experience and it's like and maybe you had to shut that game down and say sorry but maybe it's something <laughs> and we restart on a new even playing field where i need to see you shuffle those cards and then you know that when he goes out when he's playing that game with his friends he now knows that his friends might be cheating him because he cheated his brother and then and then well what did my dad do when he caught me he's like i don't think this is fair because you've got these four cards how how did you randomly get these four cards my and my dad had me reshuffle them not calling you a cheater but it's like i don't think that those cards were shuffled but he and then he doesn't understand, he may not understand that you took the shame off of him being a cheater and maybe put it on, these cards are not random. They've been stacked in a certain way. So let's reshuffle and start again. Exactly. The, the question being, how did you know that I was cheating? And why are you Googling flanks to Vegas? <laughs> um, again, I, I, will, I will share this, um, this image that we're talking about here in relation to your use of uno but that brings up the the kind of final point on the on the z plane the real world application demonstrate maturity ability to navigate social interaction so any game that you're playing is part of building uh, a connection between you and your friends your classmates and uh, other things like that so uh, beyond uno what what other activities that do you do in your in your homeschool that kind of promote this kind of pro-social interaction between students and I can guess that it has been quite difficult in the last couple of years under the COVID restrictions to really get people to connect socially so is there anything else that you do in your in your school to to promote this? When I think about Uno, I think about it being like one of the first card games that we learn. And then I look at, you know, how they hold the cards, how they organize their cards. And then once I know that they have those small little skills mastered, then I introduce the action cards. 
And then when I know that they are mature enough to handle the reactions of say, getting the plus two card or getting the plus four card, then I introduce say a more difficult game that requires them to, to manage the cards. And so that they have to organize their cards again, but they have to do with high and low. And then I gradually like take, take Uno and, all, and, and, and put it all the way against, you know, say to poker, but it's done game by game. And then there's different games that require different skills. So I actually kind of keep, say, card games in a card silo. So it's like these kind of games require these sort of skills. So, so this character thinks this way. So you don't really want to go face to face with this character in, in a game of chess because he has a whole lifestyle geared towards this sort of skill theory based learning. So if you play him at his own game, you're going to lose unless you learn how to outthink him. But to outthink this character, then you might need to jump over to say his sister, Hannah, who has learned how to deal with being a sibling of this character, Nevin, who's really good at these games, to be able to apply different strategies to his own games where he, yes, I can't beat him here, but I can outmaneuver him with these other sort of aspects and then you get into really this complexity of siblings and sibling rivalries and dealing with the complexities of life so i don't have like it's easy for me to get very specific and say all right these are the skills required to learn how to read or how to play these games or how to make a puzzle but how but the abstractions of that get far more it's, it's only up to the, the, the degree that you can see things. So as a, as a man in my 40s who's had a lifetime of dealing with siblings and friends and whatnot, my abstractions are very high. If I can make it, create it in a way that helps my students make those simple connections with through mentoring, through support, through modeling, then I'm, I'm, I'm unsure of what sort of possibilities that they will be able to use at their disposal when they have need of that situation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you start with Uno, you move on to checkers, maybe Othello, chess, poker. And then at some point you get to Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And, uh, and where know. do you think this is all coming from? <laughs> this is all coming from Sun Tzu's Art of War. Like if you had had, you know, a thousand battles with something, you will never lose. And what are those thousand battles? Like I'm sitting here, you know, in the present, I'm having these battles, but at the same time, I'm, I'm using a whole array of strategies to think about these battles. And sometimes they work. Sometimes we, we come to a win-win and sometimes we don't, but what can I model when I, when, when I break down? What can he model when he breaks down? And that's, what's, that's the complexity of interactions with people. I think that's a perfect place to finish this interview, a very positive point to think about. So we've been speaking today uh, with Rhett Burton uh, about his project, the Burton English School and his online materials. So thank you very much for your time today, Rhett, and I hope we have the chance again to speak in the future. It would be a pleasure. Thank you so much. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. 
Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.